This is the Memoir 44 podcast. It's for fans of the Days of Wonder game called Memoir 44. This podcast home on the web is at memoir44podcast.blogspot.com. Get in touch by sending an email to memoir44podcast at gmail.com. Welcome to the third episode of the Memoir 44 podcast. The Axis forces were ready for the invasion in 1944, and they weren't afraid to tell the Allies. Hang on, can you hear Germany calling? directed a large-scale attack against Portsmouth. The new German blitz attacks are more nerve-wracking than the bombardments of 1940 and 1941, writes Newsweek. Field Marshal Rommel is again on the French West Coast on a tour of inspection. The Sphere states that the man in the street doubts the results of the British and American air raids. Field Marshal Ironside indicated that in the event of an invasion, Germany would be in a position to deal out heavy counter-blows. The annual conference of the British Labour Party has been postponed owing to the traffic situation. The Soviet General Zhuraplev points out that Germany could never be conquered by means of bombing raids. It was stated before the Canadian Parliament that no bridgehead could be created on the coast of the European fortress without terrible losses. The French paper Le Nouveau Temps writes that the Anglo-American air raids are directed against France more than against the German army. General Martin declared that the Allied air forces could not eliminate the German supply routes. Only local fighting took place on the Lower Dniesta and in the Carpathian foothills. The Moscow Patriarch Sergius, who was appointed by Stalin, has died a natural death. The Metropolitan of Vilna in Lithuania, Sergius, was murdered by Bolsheviks a fortnight ago. After embittered fighting south of Casino, a few height positions were lost to the enemy. Strong German bomber formations carried out effective attacks in the Italian battle area. The Daily Herald stresses that the German defense system in southern Italy is stronger than anything the Allies have hitherto encountered in this war. The Swiss president stated that Switzerland will energetically defend her vital rights to national existence. The London announcement that industry would not be taxed additionally has led to general increases in prices. The third scenario in the Memoir 44 base game is Sword Beach. So here's a quick look at the history of the Sword Beach assault. Sword Beach on D-Day was where the first Allied troops were going to land across the water. It was the 3rd British Division led by the 8th Infantry Brigade Group. Sword Beach itself is a flat, sandy beach fronted by small villages. German strongpoints were sighted inland as well as on the beach. 
Sword Beach was at the eastern end of the Allied landings. The troops' objectives were to advance inland towards the city of Ken, to link up with the airborne troops who had landed by parachute and glider and were protecting the eastern flank of the landings against German counterattack. At 0016 and onwards, gliders and paratroopers seized the eastern flank of the landings, including Pegasus Bridge. 0430, British airborne troops who had landed earlier that day attacked the Merville Battery, a position for German long-range guns to the east of the landings. 0726, the landings begin, preceded by heavy bombardment of the beach by warships and aircraft. DD, that is swimming, tanks, and funnies, which are specialized tanks, knock out numerous enemy gun positions on the beach. 0750, numbers 4 and 10, free French commandos land, heavy fighting on the beach. 0835, three beach exits are cleared of the enemy. 0930, Hermanville taken, Riva Bella Casino Strongpoint captured by the Free French. Heavy German opposition halts the advance. With a fast incoming tide, the beach becomes congested. The reserve brigades are held up. 1000 to 1200, the German strongpoints inland are gradually overcome. 1330, First Special Service Brigade commandos link up with the 6th Airborne Division at Pegasus Bridge. Now, after that overview, I thought it might be interesting to hear a couple of short memoirs from people who were involved on the Sword Beach landings. The first is taken from the Warren Toot collection at the D-Day Museum. I was a sub-lieutenant, RNVR, in command of a Mark IV LCT, LCT 1013. We, together with another LCT of the 43rd LCT flotilla, LCT 1018, Lieutenant W. Peacock, RNVR, each carried several hundred tons of ammunition and had to dry out on Queen's Sword Beach for unloading. We had rehearsed the profile of the beach, and it was uncannily reassuring to find that it looked exactly like the model prepared in England. On beaching, we hold ourselves on one of the hedgehogs, so puncturing several of our double bottoms but not in the upshot, causing serious damage. In a quiet spell after beaching, I remembered sharing a tin of peaches or apricots with sub-lieutenant Anthony Rowland, and sitting beside the binnacle on the bridge reading Livingstone's Selections from Plato. I remember that we had some difficulty in unloading our cargo, as the troops we took over with it failed to return after beaching. Some of the material was unloaded onto the beach, but later that day in the evening it was set on fire and began exploding. Luckily the tide had returned, and we pulled off the beach with a slight list, and anchored off the beach until the following morning, when we came back to complete our unloading. Here's another short memoir, again taken from the D-Day Museum. This is in the Rupert Curtis collection. W. H. Jeffries served in Number 6 Commando on D-Day, and landed on Sword Beach from an LCI, Landing Craft Infantry. After sailing... Below deck we made a very special study of our maps, checked our arms and ammunition, and had plenty of hot soup provided by one of the crew. June the 6th, soon after dawn, we were crouching low on the deck, and to our left a battleship was firing, and above a few spitfires to cover us in. At this point the enemy gunners were trying to get our range, and shells were bursting all around us. Soon we were heading for our part on the Normandy coast, and at once all hell seemed to break out. As the enemy machine-gunners opened up, very calmly the LCI crew dropped the landing ramps down, and with good luck from the crew, we started on our way through the sea. Part of our task was to reach the airborne forces, 
who in the night had taken and were holding the bridge, now named Pegasus Bridge. After leaving the beach, we made our way through open grassland, and all around the Germans had placed notice-boards warning of mines. But by a careful study of the ground, we found the way across a part where cattle had been grazing some days before. We moved so fast that we were on to one group of Germans drinking coffee on the edge of a field. Our instructions had to be carried out. Push on to the bridge. Never mind the odds. Before I move on, I'd just like to thank the D-Day Museum for giving me permission to read out these materials. You can visit them on the web at www.ddaymuseum.co.uk. You'll find a link to that in the show notes. I'm going to take this opportunity now to read to you a slightly longer memoir. This is of Bill Millen, who was a piper of the 1st Special Services Brigade and was amongst the more noticeable men to land on the Normandy beaches on the 6th of June. I went along to the Hamble River, aboard the landing craft with 21 others, and we went in the leading one, and I had the pipes in the box. I'd been playing to the troops waiting to go aboard the craft, and then I put them back in the box, and Lord Lovett said, "'You better get them out of the box again, because once we set sail by 9.30 or 9 o'clock, you can play us out of the Solent. We will be in line astern. You will be in the leading craft with me.' So that was the start of it then. He never mentioned what to do. He realised that I knew what to do. I had to pipe ashore in the water up onto the beach, and then later he would tell me when to play. Well, the music I played sailing up from the Hamble River towards the Solent was the road to the Isles. That was the main tune I played. I was standing in the bowsprit, as you would call it, and the music was on the loud hailer. Someone put it on a loud hailer, and of course you could hear over it. I could hear it even above the bagpipes, and in the Solent just off the Isle of Wight were thousands, thousands of transports, large ones, small ones, troops aboard, and of course they heard the pipes, and they were throwing their hats in the air and cheering. I could even hear the cheers above the sound of the pipes. And then a destroyer came in close. It was a destroyer with a name like Montrose, and Lovett looked round and smiled, and waved because his family was associated with the name Montrose and they came in close, and then swerved away again, and we continued towards the Isle of Wight, and then the sea began to become choppy, so I was beginning to lose my balance a bit. I didn't want to take a header into the Solent, so I stopped playing the pipes, and that was it. We were right into the channel by this time. After we had left the Solent, and were out into the sea, into the channel, the hatches were put down, and we were downstairs in a very cramped situation. There were some people playing cards, but most of the people were sick, some violently sick, including myself. The next morning, the noise of the engines, instead of the thump, regular thump, and it was calmer, so I went along to the hatch and pushed it open and looked out at a grey dawn, and the wind was blowing and freezing cold, so I shut it very quickly and got back down where the heat was. Then, after a, another half an hour, people were starting getting gear together, their rucksacks on, picking up their rifles and making towards the hatch, and then we all got up on deck. The rails were down ready for action. Instead of being in line astern, the fleet was spread out, and we could see in the mist the French shoreline, bungalows along the seafront. Everyone was behaving normally. I mean, checking their kit, putting their kit on. I didn't think of being shot. How many Germans there? What was there? Whether the smell of feeling of seasickness was still on me. We all got up on deck, and we stood in the freezing wind watching the shoreline. 
Then the order came to get ashore, and I was very pleased to get ashore, and no one was shouting that they were afraid or, or shouting that they were going to kill all these Germans. All people wanted, really, was to get off. Lord Lovett was in the next ramp, and there were two ramps at the front of the landing craft. I was on one, and he was up on this one. He jumped into the water, so I waited till he got in, because he was over six feet tall, to see what depth it was, and someone came up on to his empty ramp. Well, he was immediately shot, a piece of shrapnel or a bullet in the face, and he fell and sunk. Well, I jumped in pretty smart then. My kilt floated to the surface, and the shock of the freezing cold water knocked all the feelings of seasickness from me, and I felt great. I was so relieved of getting off that boat, after all night being violently sick. I struck up the pipes, and paddled through the surf playing Highland Laddie. And Lord Lovett turned round and looked at me, and gestured approvingly. When I finished, Lovett asked me for another tune. Well, when I looked round, the noise and people lying about shouting and the smoke, the crump of mortars, I said to myself, Well, you must be joking, surely. He said, What was that? And he said, Would you mind giving us a tune? Well, what tune would you like, sir? How about the road to the Isles? Now, would you want me to walk up and down, sir? Yes, that would be nice. Yes, walk up and down. Well, there was the water's edge, just about a few feet up on the beach, and I walked along that part. I could see people lying face down in the water, going back and forwards with the surf. Others to my left were trying to dig in just off the beach, a low wall, and they were trying to dig in there. It was very difficult for them trying to dig in the sand, yet when they heard the pipes, some of them stopped what they were doing and waved their arms, cheering. But one came along. He wasn't very pleased, and he called me the mad bastard. Well, we usually referred to Lover as a mad bastard. This was the first time I had heard it referred to me. That's it for a look at the history of Sword Beach. Now I'll hand you over to Jack. My name is Jack Dritza. This is not a historical reenactment, but a dramatization of a scenario from the Memoir 44 board game. The following is a dramatization of Sword Beach, the third scenario of the base game. The scenario has a total of 20 units. A 20-sided dice was cast and the 13th unit was selected. This story revolves around a German in a bunker on the left side of the board from the point of view of the landing British. I felt bad. When we arrived here years ago, this area was a seaside retreat. French cottages dotted the landscape. This had to be a prime spot before the war. All the cottages were within easy walking distance of the beach. When I was younger, my cousin and I loved to spend the summers at the lake at my grandparents' farm. We talked about the ocean, but it always seemed so far away. When I arrived, it was the first time I'd ever seen the ocean. My commander was a stern but quirky man. Some say he was a college professor before the war. On the first day we arrived, he told us all to wade into the ocean. Maybe he knew something that we didn't. So that night, several of us waded into the ocean after dark. For hours we played like kids laughing and carrying on. I'm glad I did, because the next morning we started fortifying the area. 
The beach was now lined with barbed wire, tank obstacles, and anything else Army intelligence could dream up to make the beach uninviting. The beach's beauty was now marred by our tools of war. We spent years fortifying the beach up and down the coast, pouring concrete, laying barbed wire, and placing machine gun nests to create crossing streams of machine gun fire. Our beach was fortified, but not to the degree of the other beaches around us. The commander told us that this was because we had all the heavy guns behind us. Anyone landing on the beach would be landing right into the sights of our big guns. It was rather comforting thinking about them behind this range for the beach in front of us. For the past several years, we spent a large amount of time pouring concrete for a bunker overlooking the beach. This bunker later became our home of sorts. When the construction was completed, we sat in it, watched, and waited for the enemy. We quickly settled into guarding and observation details. It was all rather boring. The commander kept telling us the day was coming and to be vigilant, but with day after day of nothing, we quickly convinced ourselves that the enemy had seen how we fortified the beach and decided not to land here. Early one morning, we received conflicting reports about enemy troops parachuting inland behind us. The tension was high among all the men. We were ordered quickly to man our bunker. The large guns behind us came alive. Was this real? Who were our guns shooting at? We learned that the guns were trading fire with a ship off the coast. We readied our weapons in the bunker and began to scan the horizon as the sun began to rise. The fog was thick. It seemed thicker than usual. No matter. Once the sun rose, the fog would quickly burn off as it always did. As the sun continued to rise, we quickly discovered that it was not fog, but smoke. Ships were laying smoke. Who was out there? We started to hear boats from behind the smoke. We strained our eyes to try and find the landing craft, but nothing came through the smoke. Who was behind the smoke? After a few seconds of bewilderment, we looked at each other, and we knew the British were going to try and land on our beach. Boats now appeared from behind the thick veil of the smoke. We could make out men inside the boats, and also another kind of boat beside the troop ships. What were they? We didn't figure it out until they landed on the beach. They were tanks. Swimming tanks. We all watched in amazement as tanks swam to the shore, roared onto the beach, and crushed our barbed wire. The lead tanks machine gun opened up on the bunker. Everyone snapped out of confused days and hit the floor as the tanks sprayed the bunker. Some of us were so lucky. After the initial shock, I scrambled back to my machine gun. The tank was still out there, but now was scanning the surrounding area. More tanks and enemy troops from other landing crafts were swarming the beaches. The troops were using our tank obstacles for cover. I took the opportunity to quickly scan the beach. To my left was another bunker. This bunker had had the gun. Some tanks were swimming in to the shore. The big guns were blasting away at the tanks. The shots were less than accurate as the sand erupted in front and all around the tanks swimming ashore. In the distance, I could make up even more tanks coming ashore but I quickly lost sight of them. Everyone in the bunker concentrated their fire on the tank host gun. Machine guns peppered the tank and grenades were thrown. I'm not sure how, but the tank erupted into a ball of fire and the earth shook. Someone must have hit the fuel tank or the munitions. The blast rattled the other tanks and started to move back. Outside the bunker, a squad of fellow infantry fired a Panzerfaust that sent another tank to a one more of the swimming tanks was now destroyed. The bunker to my left kept firing at the tanks. 
The sand was erupting all around them. The troops coming ashore behind the tanks were running in all directions to find some type of cover. The last tank in front of our bunker was still backing off, but now fired his main gun into us. The blast knocked me off my feet. My ears were ringing, and the rest of the world seemed muffled. I could hear my own breathing. I was now flushed with rage. One of the machine guns was hopelessly bent, but there were still bags of grenades I could use. I frantically armed and tossed the grenades at the tank. Several bounced wildly off, but a few landed on its deck. I kept throwing grenades until the tank erupted into a large, satisfying blast. I'm not sure if I had done the deed, but at this point I really didn't care. The squad outside the bunker was now firing in the troops behind the tank obstacles. They must have seen the tank fire on us, and they were trying to support me as best they could. The ocean seemed to wash more and more waves of troops ashore. I had enough time to find a working machine gun and started sweeping the beach with round after round of gunfire. There were so many troops landing now, I just kept sweeping wildly while firing my machine gun. Several troops continued to get closer and closer. I could not pin them all down and they slowly closed on my bunker. Grenades bounced through the bunker's opening. A large blast threw me against the wall. Everything went black. My ears were ringing again. I couldn't move. My breathing slowed and my thoughts returned to my memories of the beach the first day we arrived, waiting in the ocean and laughing. What a beautiful beach it had been. Thanks, Jack. That was another really good piece of work. Now, let's take a look at the scenario itself. As I said earlier, this is the third scenario in the Memoir 44 base game, and represents the Battle at Sword Beach. This is where the Allies are going to be landing, so they actually start with all their troops in the water. The Axis forces start out on the northern edge of the map. They're spread out across the whole width, and there is about two-thirds of them as compared to the number of Allied troops. The strongest points on the map are the three bunkers. Now these are basically where the grass starts and spread out across the three segments of the map. The central one contains an artillery unit. This means they can practically hit any unit on the map from that position. The bunkers are not freestanding. They're all defended by a number of coils of barbed wire. There are gaps in this wire, but basically it runs right across the map. In front of the barbed wire on the beach hexes are a number of hedgehogs. There are gaps once again through these hedgehogs, but these don't necessarily line up with the gaps in the barbed wire. The Allied troops contain three tank units, and these start out in the first line of the water. So this represents the original DD tanks coming into the beach first before the troops got there. Behind the barbed wire and behind the bunkers are a very few number of terrain pieces. You have a town and a couple of tree hexes on the left, you have a couple of tree hexes on the right, and a town in the middle and right-hand sections. But these are all against the back edge of the map, and generally don't take a big part in the battle. Each of these town hexes contains a victory medal for the Allied forces. So if your troops can get out of the water, get up the beach, across the open land, and get to those towns, then you can pick up extra medals. So let's take a quick look at the overall tactical situation. The Allies do outnumber the Axis forces. However, 
they all do start in the water. And five of the infantry units, and especially the commando units, and there's three of them, they start on the second row of water. That means you're going to have to spend a whole turn just moving them up to the water's edge before they can start moving normally. The Axis troops are spread out. They start in all the bunkers, and as I mentioned, there are guns in the central bunker. So it's unlikely that those units are going to be moving out of there. There are a number of infantry units for the Axis forces scattered across the back edge of the map. But interestingly, there is one tank unit for the Axis forces, but this is pinned. It is stuck in the top left corner behind woods and a town. So it's going to take you two turns to get through there, much as it'll take the Allied player two turns to get his infantry out of the water. When I first came to this scenario and played my first couple of games, I naturally thought that the Allies had the advantage with a larger number of troops, but it is actually quite a balanced scenario. But for the Allies, there are a number of difficulties. The hedgehogs prevent the movement of your tanks, the barbed wire will slow down your infantry, and of course you're stuck in that water, so it's very hard to get out of there. Furthermore, if you go up the centre section, you are not only under the control or the firepower of those guns, but the bunkers to either side can also attack your troops, and so it is quite a weak position for you to attack from. My suggestion, if you're playing this as the Allies, is to try and take out the wings. If you shoot up either edge of the map, you're able to only take on one bunker at a time, and of course you're further away from those guns, which reduces the damage. That is, of course, a best situation that you can aim for. If your cards are all for the centre area, you don't really have a choice. The next thing I suggest for the Allied player is that you try and get your troops out of the water before you start storming up the beaches. I find that if you don't get all your troops together out of the water, what happens is that, that your first row of troops will move up the board, be eliminated, or possibly take some terrain, but then your, your reinforcements, your second layer of troops, are stuck back in that water, and it still takes you a turn to move them up to the water's edge, and then another couple of turns to get up and into the action. So I recommend get all your troops up onto the beach before you do any serious attacks. For the Axis player, you have to be a bit more clever than that. You have so many fewer troops. Admittedly, you do have the bunkers to give them some strength, but the fact that if the Allied player does swing up the sides or come through the middle in strength, you're going to be outnumbered in any one area. Your best bet, or at least what I've anecdotally found to be the best bet, is to bring your tank out from behind the woods, is to bring your infantry that's at the back of the map, bring it up and put them to either side of the bunkers, or preferably just behind them. What this allows you to do is obviously your troops in front, inside the bunkers, are able to fend off most of the longer range attacks. That means that he's going to have to bring his tanks or his infantry in closer to be able to do any damage. When he does this, when he gets closer, your troops come out from behind the bunkers, they advance one space and they make an attack with better dice. And then, of course, you can pull them back again if he starts to overwhelm you or outnumber you. What you basically need to do is use those bunkers as cover, advance forward, make an attack, and then pull back or continue making attacks. Okay, and now I'm going to switch back to some recommendations for the Allies. You've got tanks, but they're not going to be much use to you. They're no good against the bunkers. They're not much good against the woods or the towns. What you need to do is run your tanks up the beach flatten the barbed wire, take a pot shot perhaps, and then pull them back. With only three figures in that unit, they are a little fractious and they can be knocked out quite easily, and that gives your advantage to the Axis player. 
What you really want to do is get them up there, flatten the barbed wire, bring them back, and then let the infantry storm through and take the towns at the back to gain those extra medals. And hopefully you'll get the rest of the medals you require as you're storming up the flanks. Now, let's take a look at what happened in 1944 on the day that I'm recording this podcast, which is the 21st of January. The Russian front was busy, where a shattering Russian artillery bombardment overwhelms the German garrison in the southeast of Leningrad. Over in Italy, the U.S. 36th Texas Division is heavily defeated during an attempted crossing of the river Rapido. In London, a little blitz takes place. A force of 447 aircraft are dispatched, but only 32 tons of bombs hit the targets. Nine aircraft are lost, and 13 similar night raids. In Europe, 648 RAF night bombers raid Magdeburg, two German night fighter aces, Wittgenstein, 83 victories, and Moira, 65 victories, are killed. German agents in Iceland report the departure of a British convoy. And we'll leave the big book there. And next, before I disappear into the podcasting ether, I'd like to present to you a review of a book I've recently finished called Dunkirk, Fight to the Last Man, which is by Hugh Seabag Montefiore. As the name suggests, this covers the Dunkirk campaign, that is, the retreat from the frontier back to and the evacuation from Dunkirk. My copy is the Penguin edition, which came out in 2007. It's a paperback book, and it's 700 pages long. However, 500 pages of that is the actual story, as it were, and the other 200 pages are made up of the footnotes, maps, and statistics that are referred to throughout the book. I found the writing style to be very good. It kept me interested, it wasn't slow, it wasn't boring, and the author kept switching from subject to subject, which kept your interest level up throughout. The stories he tells are all lifted from memoirs, interviews, etc., and other books that he's referenced, and they are all personal stories. They bring the whole campaign to life as individual personal stories scattered throughout the whole campaign. When I started this book, all I knew was that there was problems on the frontier in this campaign, and that we eventually took everybody off using the little boats from Dunkirk. But when I read this book, I found out there was in fact an awful lot more to the story about the crumbling of the French army, about the possibility of the British being cut off, the defence of the retreat corridor, and the fact that the Dunkirk evacuation was not the only evacuation. Before Dunkirk, there was Calais, which was surrounded, cut off, and then the troops were evacuated from there. And then, after the whole Dunkirk incident, there was further fighting and even more evacuations. The book is very good. I would recommend it. However, I do have one caveat. I like my footnotes in these sort of books to be at the bottom of the page, even if they're extensive and they carry over onto more than one page. But in this case, the authors put all of those notes at the end of the book. Unfortunately, for me, this means I need to have two markers in that book, one for the actual page I'm reading and another to indicate the chapter where the footnotes are for that particular chapter that I'm reading. Admittedly, many of these footnotes are just indicating the source for the material that he's presenting, but some of them actually tell a bit of story. So you end up flicking from one end of the book to the other, and I just found that a bit distracting and a little annoying. But as I said, it's overall a very good book. If I've whetted your appetite for this book, I'll try and put a link to it into the show notes to Amazon, or something like that.
And now a quick note about the competition that I launched last episode. Nobody won it. Nobody entered it. So I guess I'll be throwing those discs away or putting them in a charity shop or something. I was coaching the barge. So I didn't show you, okay, this is it. So I jumped up, grabbed my gear, jumped into the water. It was a long way from the shore, further than I thought it had been, about 300 yards. Jumped into the water, it was deeper than I thought. I started to swim. We eventually made the sea wall. Just as we get alongside the tank barrels, we thought we were pretty good then. A Jerry 88mm gun hit our tank and blew us the hell out of it. Okay, next episode, we're going to be doing the fourth scenario that comes in the base game. This is called Point du Hoc. If you have anything you'd like to include in that show with regards to the Point du Hoc scenario, then please do get in touch with me. You can contact me at the memoir 44 podcast at gmail.com. There's also a guild for this podcast at Board Game Geek, and there'll be a link to that on the webpage. That's all for today. FNH signing off. The Vichy Radio told of great masses of Allied planes slashing at German defenses in the Calais and Dunkirk area and reported violent naval action thundering off the French coast in the narrowest part of the English Channel. Prime Minister Winston Churchill declared that American, British, and Canadian forces have penetrated several miles inland in some cases. Thus far, invasion losses have been unexpectedly light. The German radio admitted that Allied forces had seized the beachhead some 16 and a half miles long by a few miles deep in the Villers-sur-Mer-Trouville area. The London radio stated that the invasion front in France was sufficiently broad by evening to be more than a bridgehead. <laughs>